take it away. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. Hi. It is so good to be back. Um, okay. So, uh, as Pastor Tim said, I ask a lot of questions, um, and I do not mean to be rhetorical in nature with those questions, meaning I would love to hear your voices. Um, so, when I ask a question, please feel free to shout out. Um, if you want to raise your hand, you can, but you really don't need to. Um, but yeah, feel free to shout out when I ask a question, because to me, I think we all can learn from each other, um, and it's not just me up here that we're learning from today, because God is talking and active and moving in all of our lives. So, um, today, uh, there's a community-wide book discussion, and the book is opening up um, with the Beatitudes. Sermon on the Mount, uh, beginning here with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll dive in. So, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, here we go. So um, at the very end there, just as a little note, uh, in that verse 12 of Matthew 5, um, as we're thinking about Matthew 5, 1 through 12, um, Jesus references who? The prophets, the prophets 2,000 years ago only? Louder? Before them. before them, right? He says the prophets who were before you, meaning there's something kind of underlying and embedded in the whole conversation of what's going on in Matthew. And so to begin to unpack that um, of, of the who were before you and why that's so important. Um, so when we think about Matthew, um, one of the things that's helpful whenever we look at any of the Gospels is to know the meaning of the names of the author of the Gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is really helpful for any book of the Bible, particularly though in the Gospels, because it kind of lends, or it lends a lens. One has, the first one had a D, the second one did it. It lends a lens um, onto how we're thinking and seeing Jesus and what we're looking at him through. So when we're talking about Matthew, um, Matthew, uh, probably his name would be pronounced Matasyahu in Hebrew, Matasyahu, uh, Matthew will say, um, and Matasyahu, Matthew, literally means the gift of the Lord or the Lord's gift. So we're thinking about Jesus as a gift of the Lord or the Lord's gift, and that's part of the lens, the angle we're thinking and looking and seeing Jesus through in the book of Matthew. And to think a bit more about Matthew, who was Matthew? tax collector. And was he a smart guy? Pretty, pretty bright guy. Yeah, yeah, smart. Um, smart man, tax collector. And um, there's a lot of thoughts, but the, the primary thought is that Matthew is writing the Gospel of Matthew um, to an audience. Who's his audience? Louder? 
the Jewish people. The thought is that Matthew is writing to Jews. That, that is the idea um, of part of Matthew. And so if we're writing to Jews, then I'm going to want to connect a lot of what I'm talking about to what? Louder? Jewish scripture, right? I'm going to want to connect this to the Old Testament. I'm going to want to be talking about the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I'm going to want to be talking about, throughout the Old Testament, the writings. I'm going to want to be talking about the prophets. I'm going to try to hook into a lot of Psalms, right? Because what are all of these people going to have a base foundational knowledge of? The Old Testament, right? So I'm going to be trying to hooking all of this in because I know my audience. And I'm going to be trying to show the people on some level of here's where we've been in the text, here's the river of what it means to be a part of God's people, and here's what Jesus is doing, here's how he's coming as salvation, and this is where we're moving. But Matthew's not going to be saying just we're starting with Jesus, he's going to be saying, ah, there's all of this that's come before, which is why Matthew begins with what? what is, how does Matthew start? Genealogy, because it's incredibly important to the people he's talking to to see, ah, this is the genealogy. This is the river we've come from. This is how we get to where we are today and how then we might be moving to where we're going. So the genealogies are going to be phenomenally important, which is why Matthew starts with genealogies, because he knows his audience, right? He knows who he's speaking to. And so when we're talking about Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and Jesus is coming here to the Beatitudes and, and giving this part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus knows his audience. Um, who's Jesus' audience? Who's he talking to? His disciples, right? Amen. And it also says there were what? Crowds of people. And these people are all living where? Primarily. Israel, meaning a lot of these folks are going to mostly be what? Jews, right? So he's talking to a Jewish audience. So Jesus is also going to be thinking, ah, who are the people that I'm talking to here? What are they going to understand? What's going to be their background? What is their context? And the thought is, roughly 2,000 years ago, um, that most people in what is now, we'll say, modern-day Israel, um, sometimes referred to as the promised land throughout the Old Testament, um, although actually not often, but different conversation. Anyways, um, <laughs> still a whole debate. Anyways, so, um, so he, he's thinking about who his audience is, and most of the people 2,000 years ago were speaking Aramaic. And Aramaic um, in this land is very similar to Hebrew. If one would look at what Aramaic looks like, if one were to see it written down on paper, it's literally, it'll use the same as Hebrew letters. So Aramaic and Hebrew, very much sister languages, um, maybe similar to how we might think of like Portuguese and Spanish. They're incredibly similar, not exactly the same, but boy howdy, there's a lot of similarities. Um, and so probably he's giving this in Aramaic to a Jewish audience. And so, therefore, when we're thinking about what this looks like, to try to climb into, ah, what is the language of what the people would be saying? Because we're really, while it's in Greek, and as we see it in the New Testament, this is probably being given in Aramaic. So we're trying to make the language links, and then it's also important to go, okay, so how is this communicating in the Old Testament? So then what's the language we would see in there that Jesus is trying to hook everyone into and what he's talking about? So... As a part of that, there's something that's said in verse 1 that um, is easy to kind of skip over, but there's so much in here, but just to try to pick up on a couple things and dive more deeply into them. Verse 1, what do you notice? What does Jesus do? Sits down, opens his mouth. What else does he do? Teaches. Good. What else does he do? Looks over the crowd. Good. Amen every word. What else does he do? Blesses, good. Before we get there, what else does he do? 
Ah, louder? Thank you. He goes up the mountain. Gang, he goes up the mountain. And I want you just, that idea is going to have an incredible significance to the people that would be there, but also to the audience that Matthew is writing to. He's going up a mountain. If he's going up a mountain, what might I be clued into from other instances in the Old Testament of people going up mountains? Mount Sinai! Okay, was there another mountain mentioned? No, okay, Mount Sinai. Yes, it's that. Okay, Mount Sinai. One of the very first things I'm going to hear from hearing Jesus goes up a mountain, I'm going to think of, oh, Moses going up Mount Sinai. And when Moses goes up Mount Sinai, kind of starting in Exodus 19-ish, when he goes up Sinai, he's going to receive from God what? Instruction. Good. What's good? More. Ten Commandments. Good. What else? Yeah, it says he sees God, and um, someone in the first service had a very funny comment, because when he sees God, he comes down the mountain, he is what? Glowing. Well, terrified, and glowing. And someone said he got, he got a really bad sunburn. Um, it's like sunburn, sunglow, and yeah. Anyway, okay, yes. So, uh, seeing God, he's, he's sunburn glowing. Um, uh, he, um, he gets the Ten Commandments. What else does he get up there? Instructions for how to build the tabernacle. Good, right? God's indwelling presence in the center of our community. How are we going to build this thing? Moses gets it on Sinai. Good. And a third thing Moses gets on top of Mount Sinai, it'll say? Exactly. It, it, it will actually, to your point, it literally says that Moses receives the Torah on Mount Sinai. The thought is Genesis through Deuteronomy is given to Moses on Sinai which would beg so many more questions, but it's what it says there in Exodus, that, that Moses receives the Torah, he receives the first five books of the Bible, he receives the Ten Commandments, and he receives the instructions for the tabernacle, right? So all of this is happening with Moses on Mount Sinai. And if I'm an audience of people who, when I think go up a mountain, my, one of my immediate thoughts is Moses on Sinai and what he comes down with, when I see in verse 1 that Jesus is doing what? Going up a mountain, I might be clued into, ah, where have we seen mountains before? What's happened when people have come down from mountains? What have they given us? And it's why there's something so kind of in the weeds of it. But in verse 2, it'll say, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and and several people mentioned taught. The word there for taught in the Greek seems to kind of mirror um, in the Hebrew what would be the word Torah. And Torah, which I know oftentimes translated as law, in Hebrew quite literally means teaching. So literally, he opened his mouth and he tore with them. He taught them, saying. And so there's this whole kind of, what is Jesus doing here? What is Matthew hooking into? What are the connections being drawn for the audience? And what would they have heard both in the day and then the people reading the book of Matthew? And so here comes Jesus. He's going to teach. He's going to bring the Torah. He's going to bring the word of God as he's going up the mountain for the people. Okay, so just kind of want to get some of those links in because there's so much in these verses. But there's a whole context in which who is the audience that literally is before Jesus in the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, and what is the audience that Matthew is writing to, and what would they have been seeing, thinking, hearing, understanding? So, good, okay, another puzzle piece here. Um, There's a word in these verses, in the Beatitudes, that shows up um, probably more than almost any word in here. and it really helps to kind of unpack this word in what the people might have been thinking when they heard it. So, what word do we notice shows up throughout the Beatitudes a lot? Blessed, right? We got a lot of blesseds. 
Um, whole lot of blesseds. And this is where, um, to try to climb into what might this word have been. The word that shows up in the Greek for blessed here in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, um, in Hebrew, or excuse me, in Greek is the word makarios. Makarios. And it seems that this word makarios does resemble a word in Hebrew. As he's speaking in, Jesus speaking Aramaic Hebrew, what's the word that it would represent in that language? So there's, there is a word for it, for a moment, though, to point to something. There's multiple words in biblical Hebrew for blessed. So there's one word that means blessed, um, and it's one that appears fairly often, um, and in Hebrew, it's the word baruch. Baruch, like B-A-R-U-C-H, baruch. And baruch, which does mean blessed, and, or blessed, and it's a word that's used in almost every Hebrew prayer. When you hear almost any prayer in Hebrew, it's going to start with baruch. Um, usually baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Like, you're going to hear baruch almost immediately on the go. It's that word for blessed. And that word for blessed shows up in a lot of places in Scripture. Some of the more prominent ones we might be familiar with in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Lord will say to Abram, go forth from your native land, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And in verse 2 will say, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. The word there in verse 2 of Genesis 12 um, that the Lord is saying to Abram is that word baruch, blessing. The word shows up again very prominently in Numbers chapter 6 um, where we're talking um, sometimes referred to as the priestly blessing or the Aaronic blessing um, where it begins by saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and goes on. That word, the Lord bless you, is again the word baruch, blessing. And that is one of the Hebrew words for blessing. And it's probably not the word that Jesus is using here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It's a, probably a different word in all likelihood that he's using in Matthew 5. So just want to kind of point to, there's another word for blessing. Not all the words blessing really have the same idea. And that's not really the word that's really being used here. That Abram, Genesis 12, 2, that number 6 priestly blessing, different idea around blessing. This idea for blessing probably more represents in Aramaic slash Hebrew the word ashray. Ashray. And ashray does mean blessing. It also literally is sometimes translated as happy. Blessed or happy. Now, for a moment, because I want to dive into what this idea of happiness is really thinking in Scripture, but before we do that, when we think of the word happy, what do you think about? What, what conjures up when you hear the word happy? Smiling. Good. What was that? Fulfillment. Well, that's going to be helpful. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, smile. Fulfillment. Good. Happiness, sometimes we think of as being a what? A feeling or an emotion. And that feeling, that emotion, can be very what? Louder? Transient, ooh, <laughs> SAT word, okay, transient, okay. Um, can be very transient, um, right? Meaning it, it can be wildly dependent upon my what? My mood and my circumstances. So depending on my circumstances, I might be happy, I might be smiling. Um, but other times, if my circumstances, sad, because they've changed, right? So, so happiness can be very transient, right? Very fleeting here one moment on the next. Um, and that is, I think, how we think of happiness. I want to suggest our Bibles are thinking about happiness quite differently 
and this idea of what it means to be happy, blessed, the Hebrew word ashrei. And it's not necessarily thinking just an emotion, a temporal feeling that's very transient in nature or dependent upon circumstances. The, the word has a very different flavor in the text. And so one of the things that's going to be really helpful in really diving into what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, is to dive into this word blessed ashrei. So, looking at this word, um, it shows up very prominently um, in, well, and to kind of get deeper into a context in an unfolding of how this word is thinking. Um, this word blessed slash happy shows up um, very prominently, I'll give a clue, um, in a psalm. Anyone want to guess what psalm? Louder? One. Very good. Very good. Psalm 1. Very nicely done. Psalm 1, exactly. Um, Blessed or happy is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the path of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. Rather, the teaching of the Lord is his delight, and he studies that teaching day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water. That word in Psalm 1, blessed, is that word ashrei in Hebrew, which does mean blessed, also literally happy. And so in trying to climb into what is this blessed happiness thinking about that Jesus is really exploring in the Beatitudes, Psalm 1, I think, can just be a phenomenally helpful place to really dig in and go, what is this concept thinking? So, because, it, right, there's this whole community-wide book discussion that's happening here, and as we're stepping into that, we're starting with the Beatitudes. And so to really kind of go, what are we talking about? What is this word blessed that Jesus says so many times to kick off the Sermon on the Mount? So, unpacking this word in Psalm 1, blessed, happy, ashray. So, to kind of jump past verse 1, because we could spend a lot of time on what that's saying, and kind of jump into what is the blessed, happy man doing, blessed slash happy is the man, verse 2, it'll say, the teaching of the Lord is his delight. And he studies that teaching day and night. The word there for teaching is actually the word Torah, Again, showing up, um, Psalm 1, verse 2, the word teaching, some translations will say the law of the Lord, teaching or law. There in Hebrew, it's the word Torah. So it's saying, though, that the teaching, the law, when we think about teaching, or especially law, um, of the Lord is his what? Delight. Gang, I don't know about you, but law to me doesn't sound very delightful. That's the law sounds like a whole bunch of what? Rules. Ooh, mm, okay. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not a huge fan of, well, some are nice, but some are, mm, don't know that I always like them. Um, <laughs> so, being honest. Uh, right? I, I don't, and I don't know that I would particularly think of, of like laws as delightful. And yet, this is talking about the teaching of the Lord is his delight. Meaning, wants this, it's probably not thinking about teachings, laws, as being very strict. What? probably not thinking about laws as being very strict rules that I kind of have to ooh, obey <laughs> yeah, or else. Um, I want to just, th this is thinking about teachings, Torah, as being what? Ooh, life-giving, right? There's something in here that we can what? It's life-giving. It's Delightful. Uh, say the word again. Meditate on it. Ah, louder. 
There's meat to it, right? It's not just some constraining, I'm, I'm just so held back. There, there is something delightful. There is something life-giving. There's something to meditate, chew on. You said, Holly Ann? Delightful to this. And that's where, to try to climb into what this might be talking about, right? Because it says that you're delighting upon the word of the Lord, that it's life-giving. And if there's something to chew on, it's not necessarily that I'm looking at the word of God, I'm looking at the Bible, and I'm just trying to do what? Come up with a list of rules to follow. Exactly. What do we sometimes do with our Bibles? If I, sometimes, what do I want to do with the Bible? And please, I'm not trying to say this is always a bad thing by any means. But sometimes, in order to know more information, what might I try to do with my Bible? Use it as a rule book. Well, how do I know the rules of the book, though? What do I have to do first? Read it. So sometimes I want to suggest what we do with our Bibles is we just try to read through as fast as we can. And then we're going to get all the knowledge of what all the rules that I should do are. And then we'll have all the rules and we'll be done. Right? But I want to say, actually, what Psalm 1 is talking about is what am I doing with the teachings of God? What am I doing with God's word? Studying it. Studying it. And it's literally that word in verse 2. It literally says, it, it, most of say, um, the teaching of the Lord is his delight, and he studies that teaching day and night. But you said the word, um, the word that they're using there, sometimes also translated as meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. And that Psalm 1, verse 2, I'm really studying it. I'm thinking about it. The word there that they're translating um, in Psalm 1, verse 2, for I uh, study it day and night, or, or I meditate day and night, the word there in Hebrew is the word yeh geh. Yeh geh, which is really fun to say. Um, uh, yeh geh. And yeh geh is what they'll translate as studies or meditates. The thought of this word, though, um, in Hebrew um, is yeh geh is in all likelihood, it's an onomatopoeia, meaning, bless you, um, the word is literally... Um, the, the sound that it makes, and that's the thought of the word. And so the thought of yeah, yeah, is, is almost like uttering under my breath. Like it's something that I would be meditating on all the time, studying continuously and just really muttering under my breath, almost muttering to myself. Meaning the idea of the teaching of the Lord is his delight and he studies, meditates, utters to himself day and night is that this is something I am doing what with? What am I doing with the teachings of God? Louder? I'm internalizing them. Okay, good. I'm internalizing them. Good, good. More. What was that? I'm so... Implementing. Ooh, I like it. Implementing. Okay, internalize, implement. I want to just, before I get to internalize, implement, what do I need to do? I ingest them. Okay, and how am I ingesting them? Do I just swallow them whole? I'm, okay, I'm chewing on it, right? I'm really turning it over in my mind. What does this mean? What is God saying? What is God communicating in this? Meaning, and please, again, I'm not trying to say it's a bad idea. Just the notion of, I'm just going to read through the whole Bible and figure out what it all means. I want just the idea of what the happy, blessed man is doing in Psalm 1 is he's chewing on the word of the Lord continuously. He's studying it. He's, um, Jeremy, you have a phrase um, for this word. Uh, what is it? Like a dog worrying a bone. You're chewing on it. You're gnawing on it. You're turning it. You're chewing on it some more. You're worrying the bone. 
Almost just that idea, I think, is very much present in that Psalm 1, verse 2 of the teaching of the Lord is his delight, and he studies, meditates, chews, gnaws, worries the bone day and night. And then that kind of internalizing, implementing that idea. And this is what it's described as being how? Happy. Meaning this idea of happiness isn't what? Fleeting. It's not just one emotion that's right here one moment and gone the next. This idea of happiness is very, very what? Louder? It's your character. It's a part of who you are, right? This is something that would be therefore very, very what? Louder? A long, it would take a long time, absolutely, a lifetime. Good, right? This kind of idea of being happy, it's not just something that can be temporal or dependent upon circumstances. I'd be very what? Louder? Ingrained. Oh, okay, right? It would become ingrained, right? Meaning this idea of happiness has a what to it. Ooh. Wow. Oh, there were seven. Okay. Can y'all do that again? That was beautiful. Oh, everyone who just said words. Um, can you say them again? That was. Heartbeat to itself. Oh, my gosh. That was gorgeous, right? All of those ideas. I want to just, is very much what this idea of happiness is thinking about in our Bible. This concept of happy, blessed, ashray is really more the idea. And it's why in verse 3, it says, blessed, happy is the man. He will be compared to, it'll say, he is like a tree planted beside streams of living water. Meaning, this happy, blessed man has what? Roots. Meaning, he's not just going to be able to be blown away and blown about by whatever's happening in the world. And I want to suggest Sky in this first chapter of the book, seems to be doing um, a couple of times pointing to there's a lot of distractions in life. There's a lot of things that can kind of pull us all different many kinds of ways and things that sometimes we find purpose and meaning in. And it's not therefore to say those things are inherently bad. How are we engaging with them? How are we relating to them? Are we putting our identity in those things? Or are we putting our identity in God? Are we grounding ourselves? In his word, are we chewing on it, gnawing it, worrying the bone, meditating it day and night? And that's, I want to suggest, what Jesus is talking about here, happy, blessed. And he is like a tree planted beside streams of living water. And just, it's a little thing, but it's really helpful when looking at Psalm 1. Um, the word that they're translating as planted in Psalm 1, verse 3, that word planted, actually in Hebrew, would be more literally transplanted. So happy, blessed is the man. He is like a tree transplanted beside the streams of living water, which gives that a whole flavor, but that would be a whole nother study. But just to kind of point to, um, if thinking about what is the concept of a happy, blessed man looking like, that idea would be there. And I want to suggest when Jesus is saying these words in Matthew chapter 5, he knows his audience and he's probably using this word ashray in Aramaic slash Hebrew with the people, and they would immediately go, ah, where do I know this word? Where have I heard this word before? What's the context of this word? How is this word thinking working? And the majority of people 2,000 years ago, when they would pray, what would they, how would they pray? What would they use to pray? 
Louder? Psalms. Psalms. Thank you, Charlie. They would use the Psalms to pray. Nowadays when we pray, um, and I'm not saying this is, like, we pray usually for healing or we're praying for something specific. And people would do that too 2,000 years ago. Uh, one of the primary ways they would pray, though, is with the Psalms. So they would literally say the Psalms and sing them or chant them or say them as an act of prayer. And the very first Psalm is this Psalm. So literally, this is something that's probably in their minds. They got it on. Even if one wasn't able to read or write, you would hear the Psalm. You would know the Psalm. This is what you would pray. And this is what the audience is hearing, thinking here. And it's where, in verse 12, I, we're going to get into just for a moment here, but in verse 12, right, he's talking about those who were before. Right? I mean, there's continually these pointings to what have we done before? How have we gotten here to this moment in time? Who has come before us? And what can we learn from that as to where we might be going forward and how we might be treated? And so I want to suggest in the Beatitudes, because what's about to follow um, and even towards the end of these verses are some difficult things that Jesus is going to be introducing the people to and some hard wrestlings that are going to be asked of people to follow him. He starts off, I want to suggest, and he's going to connect a whole lot of things to people that they would understand, that they might be familiar with. So when he's in the Beatitudes, he's trying to cue the people in. Here's where we've been before. Here might be some things you recognize. And just as a quick few examples, there are so many, but just as a couple of quick examples of what Jesus might be pointing to when he's, uh, when he's saying these words, um, as a one quick example, Jesus will say, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, verse 4. Now, here we go. This is Psalm 34, verses 18, or excuse me, 17 and 18. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Okay, so now, one more, another quick example. Um, this will be, uh, here we are, um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24, 4 and 5. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Okay, here we go again. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall uh, receive mercy. 2 Samuel 22, verse 26. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. I Meaning, I want to suggest, when Jesus is saying these words, he's hooking into a lot of ideas that have been around for a while, and he's trying to point to people, hey, that we're in a river that's been going on for a while here, and there's a whole context and a background for which these beatitudes are being spoken of that would be held and known by the people. And when we think about the worst word for blessing or happy, and we're thinking about how this all begins, I think there's also an idea where this word ashray, happy, blessed, happy, blessed is the man, the teaching of the Lord is his delight, and he studies that teaching day and night. He is like a tree transplanted beside the streams of water. A couple people said internalized and implemented, right? That, that there's a wrestling that's happening here, there's a gnawing, there's a chewing on the teachings, the word of God, and that's being internalized and implemented, meaning this idea of happy, blessed is an idea of being happy, blessed that is something that is, is, is a what? 
It's an action. It's a way of it's a way of living, right? And that's this idea of what it means to be blessed. Meaning, this idea of blessed is not necessarily thinking, blessed are those who mourn, they'll get comfort. Right? That sounds like I do the thing, and then what? God gives me comfort. So I do the thing, and then I, I get happy. Okay, right? And that sounds like what kind of a relationship with God? Very transactional. And that is not this idea at all. I think sometimes, as, as, as moderns, but it's been for centuries, I think, where we read onto uh, this transactional way of doing things. Whereas I want to just, as you said, this is an action. This is a way of, as a way of living. I mean, I want to just, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he's not saying, when you mourn, then God's going to throw you comfort after. I want to just, he's saying that in your mourning, that in the act of mourning, you will experience happiness and comfort, right? I think so very often, um, when someone passes away, we, I think sometimes can be quick to say, you shouldn't feel sad, you should be happy, and you should rejoice, because why? They're in a better place. And yes, please, I'm not trying to say that that's not true. And for the rest of my life as I live and breathe, what am I not going to get to do again? See them and touch them, hug them, embrace them, right? And it's like when my grandmother passes away, I, I need some time and some space to be able to do what? To mourn and to grieve. And it's not to say that it's not untrue that they might not be... It, Yes, better place. Yes, there is rejoicing in that. And I am sad. I am not going to hug my mother again on this side. And I am feeling really, really upset. And I, and I need some time to mourn. And I want to just, when we don't mourn, when we say, no, you just got to be happy. You just got to be rejoicing. They're in a better place now. I want to just, what happens when we don't take that time and space to mourn? Okay, <laughs> we might become resentful towards God. Okay, it's like filling up your closet and never clearing it out. You're filling up a space and never leaving room for something to come in. And, as, and I want to just, there's also a thing where it might be because I never mourned that it's four and a half years later and someone says something and I burst into tears. Because what did I never do? I never actually held this. I never felt the feeling. I had to stow it and shove it down and push it away. And I'm not saying that can't happen when one does mourn. That sometimes happens even when we do mourn. But the idea of mourning equals bad, or there's no comfort in mourning, I want to just, what Jesus is trying to point to is that in the action, in the living out of what it means to mourn, there will be comfort. It's not something that's just a result that I get after the fact. It's in the living out of what it means to live this way that there is comfort in mourning. And I want to just, that's kind of at the heart of this, that this is not some kind of transactional list of I do the thing and I get the thing that this is an invitation of how do we live in a happy, blessed way where we're continually gnawing and meditating on the word of God constantly that grounds us and roots us in something deeper and bigger than ourself? Okay, I know we've covered a lot of ground in a lot of different directions. Um, 
Any questions, comments, thoughts on anything we talked about this morning? Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, we would need more time, but it it, it might be helpful um to unpack the word pure, um, because there's a word in Hebrew that probably corresponds with the word pure, and that um. Yeah, would be very helpful. Um, it's it, there's a decent chance um that the word pure could be connecting into blameless, spotless, unblemished, without flaw, or which would have a whole context in Genesis in particular that would then take you on a river of what is it actually talking about there. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of ways to, and it could be understanding, a different understanding of pure, but I think that that would help to kind of guide into a, what is he talking about pure? What is that word? Um, yeah, such a good question. Yeah, yeah, we need more time. Okay, um, okay. Um, so um, let us pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift that it is um, that we get to gather, that we get to open up your word. Lord God, we thank you uh, for the precious space of being able to wrestle, that you give us room um, to question, to wonder. Lord God, as Pastor Tim said, um, pray that we would be open to hearing and receiving what you have for us, that as we unpack Matthew 5, 1 through 12, as we look at the Beatitudes in the days and in the hours to come, that we would receive some sweet revelation and maybe see something new or understand something maybe in a way we hadn't before. Lord God, pray that we would walk this out, that we would be active and embodied with your word, that it would lead us and guide us, that it would help to show us how to be and how to see and Lord God, we, we thank you um, for the delightful sweetness that it is to be able to gather in community and explore what you have given us. And it is in your holy name we pray. Amen.